Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. I will introduce my co-host here in just a minute, but I want to tell you about the show first. Today we're talking with our guests about the increase in domestic violence reports during the pandemic. We had a show a couple years ago at the start of the pandemic, and advocates were very concerned about domestic violence and that it would go up during go up uh, and be underreported during the pandemic. And data collected in 2000, or 2020 from the Indy area has confirmed that. So we're going to be talking about that today. And we have three guests on the studio, or not in the studio, but three guests who are going to be joining us over, the, uh, over Zoom again today. Amanda Salguero is the Director of Research and Impact for the Domestic Violence Network, which was responsible for the survey. Jamie Schnurpel is with the Julian Center. She's Director of Programs and Survivor Services. And Deborah Morrow is from the Middleway House. She's the Executive Director. If you have questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Send us questions there. You can also send questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And uh, you can join us on the show by calling in 812-855-0811 or toll-free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine nine three four eight. So our co-host today is Lori McRobbie, and Lori's going to be joining us um, as a co-host on the show. Sarah Whitmire will still be a co-host. I'll be hosting some shows, and Lori's going to be joining us um, frequently on the show as well. Lori, you probably know as the former first lady of Indiana University, and she is a professor and scholar in her own right. So, Lori, welcome to the program. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. And Lori also has experience with this particular topic. She was a member of the Middleway Board for seven years, uh, she believes, 2006 to 2013. Something like that. <laughs> Something like um, that. So, All right. So I'm going to start the program with uh, Amanda Salguero. Amanda, this uh, study that the Domestic Violence Network did, what were some of the key takeaways? Yeah, so this report looked at statistics from 2020 uh, for the central Indiana area. And so we really looked at four key sections, um, just COVID-19 in general and the implications on the state of domestic violence for central Indiana, uh, service agency calls and arrests for Marion and the surrounding counties, um, and then domestic violence-related fatalities, uh, especially with an emphasis on fatalities where a firearm was used. Uh, We saw a dramatic increase in those uh, in 2020. And as well, we go over prevention programming. All right. So can you give us a just a one takeaway that you had from it? Yeah. Um, so I think there are a couple of pretty key things in there. Um, the pandemic really affected a lot of areas of domestic violence. Um, so we see that calls to service agencies actually um, decreased or stayed about the same as they did for the previous two years. Um, so there were about 13,000 calls made to central Indiana service providers that we received data from. Uh, in the previous year, there were 15,000. And then in 2018, there were 13,000. So it's on par. Um, and a lot of the reasons have to do with um, 
shelters decreasing capacity over the course of COVID for safety measures to keep residents safe. Um, the other thing is the increase of firearms usage in domestic violence fatalities. Um, in the previous two years, 2018 and 2019, that number was at 65% of all homicides, intimate partner homicides, were used um, were caused with the use of a firearm. And in 2020, that increased to 85%. All right. Um, I want to ask uh, Jamie Schnurple next from the Julian Center just for sort of an overview of what the pandemic meant to your center and the programs that you have. Uh, sure. Amanda kind of hit on a couple of those um, uh, topics already. We we did see a de- decrease um, in calls to our crisis line right in the beginning Um, And that is largely due to the isolation orders and the stay-at-home orders that we had in place because uh, there was not that built-in, you know, break in being around abusers and and ability to to reach out as frequently as uh, survivors had been. So we did see a little bit of a dip. Um, And then also having to adhere to the very... um, ever-changing, if you will, regulations that come from the CDC and and the Department of Health um, with respect to, you know, masking up and um, how to keep people safe and social distancing, et cetera, um, we had to decrease our numbers in our our shelter space. Um, We still operated every day. We had staff here every day, 24 hours a day, um, but we did see a a drop-off. And then as I think we all feared, as things started to reopen and as uh, restrictions were lifted, we saw um, a spike in the lethality levels of the calls that we were receiving. Um, We had, as Amanda mentioned, many folks who called and were victimized with the use of a weapon or an object uh, that was used as a weapon. Um, most of those firearms. So we saw that there was an increase in violence. um, And, and then ultimately, you know, we're finding out that there was, there was a higher prevalence. There was just not an easy way to get help um, during, during those lockdowns. All right. Thank you. And, and Deborah from Middleway house, Deborah Morrow, um, same question to you. I mean, what, what was it, what's a takeaway that you have from the last couple of years under the pandemic? So I echo a lot of what Jamie says. Um, when the pandemic hit and there weren't any calls coming in at first, and that was a really scary time for us because we knew that the survivors were there with their abusers. Um, as things did open up, we were receiving more calls, but our capacity of our shelter, of course, did decrease. Um We have rooms that we put families in and then individuals. We would put more than one single individual in a room, but we were not able to do that during the pandemic. So it did uh, lower our capacity and we had to depend on hotels for some individuals. Um, The biggest takeaway is that the pandemic also became another tool that an abuser could use to control their partner. Um, hearing from individuals who weren't allowed to get vaccinated and who were made to feel so afraid or you're not allowed to take your child to a shelter because they'll get sick and using using the pandemic as another way to control their partner. Um, I think that led to a lot of individuals staying in abusive relationships longer than they wanted to or feeling trapped and not being able to leave um, until the violence increased to a greater amount. And we, too, are hearing more individuals who are having guns, being threatened with guns or being shot at and but not being hit with the, the bullet. But it's just become a really hard time for survivors. And I think that we need to keep them centered and first in our thoughts on when we think about who's really experiencing negative impacts from the pandemic. 
Yeah, I think a uh, follow-up question on that. I know that under the best of circumstances, if, if, you, if you can call it that, it's very difficult for a victim to leave their abuser. I mean, there are all kinds of factors. I think uh, one of the biggest things I learned as a member of the Middleway House Board was I think, you know, people can sometimes think it, well, why doesn't she just leave? Um, that is the most dangerous time um, in those relationships. And certainly the pandemic, uh, as you've all detailed, exacerbated that. And and clearly also one of the other factors has to do with children, uh, children in the house. And uh, I wonder if you can talk about any other specific impacts you saw on on children, either as direct victims themselves or witnessing more uh, more violence in the home. And uh, Deborah, why don't you just keep going, and then the others of you can chime in. Um, children being at home with the violence more, where in the past they may have been at school, and children in homes with domestic violence often experience neglect and abuse themselves um, just because of the domestic violence in the home. So I think it was a very hard time for children, um, especially just the added stress of not having school, child care, parents trying to do the schooling at home. For kids in shelter, one of the things that our advocates noticed is that the kids that were in shelter tended to be more clingy to staff, and they're not quite sure why, whether it's because they there wasn't a lot of interactions with family out with individuals outside their immediate families, you know, I'm not sure. And one of the things that I noticed in our childcare with our little kids, little little kiddos learn so much just from the facial expressions of the adults that they're around. And when children were in daycare and the daycare staff had masks on their faces, these little ones who saw people smile at them in the past no longer saw those smiles with masks on. So I made sure that our daycare got some clear masks to really help those little tiny kiddos see the faces of the people that were caring for them and stuff. And I I think for kids, this will be a long-lasting impact on them, especially the ones that were home in a violent situation and didn't have the escape to school where they had safe people that they could talk to or maybe share what experiences were going on at home. Jamie, do you want to yeah. follow up too? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, I was going to say we we saw the same uh, with our folks in shelter, and I think the biggest impact, um, you know, one of the things that I have said throughout this entire pandemic is, you know, it's not just about uh, one one piece of life. Um, most of the folks that were isolated are then also dealing with um, unemployment. They're dealing with trying to teach their children information and schooling that they perhaps don't understand themselves. Um, and so it, it sort of compiles or, you know, it compounds the issue. Um, but similar to our adults who have, um, you know, breaks in their day or, or separations and, and um, safety, our kiddos lost that um, when they're, not able to go to school, not able to see their friends. Um, And food became an issue Um, when you don't have any money and you rely on, uh, you know, school programs for food. That's a a significant um, impact on your life, on your day-to-day life. Um, And we've got well over 85% of our students in IPS who are in free reduced programs. And so they relied very heavily heavily on those connections as well. Um, so as all of these stressors are impacting our adults, they're also impacting our kids. Um, and I believe that we're starting to see the impact of that as well. I think we're seeing, you know, children now are back in school and are dealing with behavior issues coming out of being isolated and, and now having to be in um, a classroom full of people again. Um, in our shelter, we, we saw the same thing. We saw a, a level of, I don't want to go so far as to call it depression, but there was this feeling of um, melancholy, if you will, because we weren't able to see each other. We weren't able to see facial expressions. Um, sometimes you wouldn't know if somebody was smiling under their mask. Um, so 
all of those things, all those social cues, all of the, the breaks in um, violence were, were taken away uh, from these families. Um, and we're going to, I believe very strongly that we'll be seeing the repercussions of all of this for probably years to come, unfortunately. Yeah, you you mentioned the 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 sense of melancholy and and clearly uh, you know we've seen um, issues of mental um, mental health uh, decline for everybody across the population, but that must have been a particular factor uh, in in the clients that you were able to deal with, and certainly in your staff uh, as well. So I wondered if you wanted to to speak to that as well. Either Jamie or Deborah. Absolutely. Um, You know, the same way we're doing our our interview right now on Zoom, um, everything went to an e-platform, right? And including mental health treatment. Well, you have a lot of issues there, right? So if somebody doesn't have um, access to internet services, well, they don't then have access to mental health providers and they don't have access to um, the resources that they need. And then you add on to that that perhaps someone's in therapy or in mental health treatment as a result of the partner they're living with. Well, now they can't necessarily hop on a Zoom call with their therapist to gain access to those coping skills, those supporting um, individuals, because their abuser, the topic of their their mental health treatment is standing right over them and monitoring what they're doing. Um, So certainly for our survivors out in the community, um, that became a very significant barrier to services uh, across the board. We um, typically with the Julian Center, we serve around about 2,500 to 3,000 people a year, but only about 500 of those come through our shelter. So the majority of the folks we're working with were out in the community isolated with their abusers. And and we've, we had to try to be... Um, cognizant of that as, as to how we're reaching out to folks and how we get them to, to reach out to us. Um, so that from the survivorship standpoint is, it, it was very, very challenging and, and it remains so on, on a lot of levels as things are, um, you know, we have some offices that are opening at full capacity, some that aren't. And so we're still dealing with a little bit of that barrier to mental health services fundamentally. Um, as for my staff, I mean, we all went through the same thing, right? Because mm-hmm. even though we were still coming to work, um, we naturally, folks that are coming into this work are social beings, are interactive, um, not necessarily all extroverted, <laughs> but we enjoy interacting with people. And that was cut off for us as well. And so we needed to be aware of that. And, and we were mostly working from home on a um, alternating schedule. So unless you happen to work the same schedule or happen to be on a Zoom call, you might go weeks or months without seeing a colleague that you're used to seeing every day. Um, so it really was quite impactful across the board. Um, and, you know, we all did our best to to try and meet meet people where they were, both staff and survivors. Um, but it was, it was incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm to be honest. Deborah, do you want to add? Yeah, I'd also like to add that I think chronic health conditions um, became worse for a lot of survivors, too, who weren't going to the doctor to follow up on their medical care because of fear of getting sick or doctor's offices being harder to access. And also substance use disorder increased. If people were not getting their mental health help, they may self-medicate, and we've seen an increase in that. Um, You know, I think it's easy to say, well, the worst of it's over, but I think I I agree with Jamie. The long-term impact still exists. I think, you know, we held our breath as staff for a really long time, Mm -hmm. and I think right now we're just now starting to really feel everything that we experienced during the really scary part of the pandemic. Um, I, you know, I'll have to say I am so impressed with all of the programs here and the staff and how they supported each other during this. I mean, I think it brought staff 
closer in a lot of ways as they counted on each other and worked together and and really were there to support each other during this time as they supported survivors. And, you know, I think it's really hard to remember that you have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others. And they did a great job at reminding them, reminding each other of that. Yeah, that's and I think that's a that's a I think an important thing for all of us listening here today and all of us who care about these issues that um, now is a really, really, really good time to support your local domestic violence agency, um, wherever you are, uh, for all the reasons we've been talking about here, because the the agencies have done just a, an amazing job um, getting their, their clients through this, and uh, it, it helps the community as a whole for us all to support you. So just a little shout out for something we can all do, I think, to, to help at this at this point. I want to give Thank our you. I want to give our phone numbers and also our other contact information. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions there. You can also find us at news at dot org. You can send us email there. Our phone numbers are eight one two eight five five zero eight one one, or toll free at eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. But also, probably more important phone numbers for today is is the uh, are the phone numbers of places where you can get services. So, um, I'm going to ask Deborah and Jamie and Amanda, anybody who can uh, give us numbers, phone numbers for people who have um, who have the need for your services. Deborah, would you start? Yes, our number is eight one two three three six zero. Eight, wait, hang on just a second. I just, I'm so sorry. 812-336-0846 is our help in crisis line. And we, there's help available 24 hours a day on that crisis line. All right. How about the Julian Center? Um, yep. Ours is 317-920-9320. Um, again, that's also 24 hours a day. It's 317-920-9320. Um, and we also have, and I'm sure, Deborah, you probably do too, have folks monitoring our social media for any messages that come in that way. Um, those also get to us, and we reach out um, safely and appropriately when we when we get those messages as well. So, All right. Amanda, any, any other numbers you want to add? Um, I'll just add that we also monitor our phones and social media, and then we refer out to our direct service provider in the central Indiana area. Um, We always say if it's immediate danger to do call 911. Um, And also there is the resource of 211, which will direct you to needed resources as well. And and there's the National Domestic Violence Hotline, uh, 1-800-799-7233. Amanda, I wonder if you, going back to the report that you did and the research you did, if you can uh, talk about some of the, the other populations that were have been affected. I mean, men are, are also victims of intimate par- partner violence, um, LGBTQ uh, identifying individuals, um, racial disparities perhaps. Could you speak to some of those those other details in the report? Yeah. Um So we looked at calls to the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, IMPD, um, and we consistently saw the same zip codes being in the top three zip codes each quarter of 2020. Um, And in those zip codes, uh, we have 46201, 46218, and 46003. Uh, We know within those zip codes, um, it is a majority minority area so we're seeing 52.2 percent of people of color in those zip codes um, as well as higher percentages of poverty in those areas it's 29.7 percent compared to the 12.4 percent of poverty in the metro area Um, so higher rates of poverty in this area and higher rates of racial um, um breakdowns as well so and and the calls to IMPD increased almost two times what they were the previous year so we saw that the need was still there 
um, for domestic violence and that people are still trying to find ways to get help. Um, but like we talked about already um, with shelters decreasing capacity and, and other things uh, around that, um, the police were one of the only ways to, to find that. Um, Along with that, we do know anecdotally that the LGBTQ plus populations were highly affected um, just because of isolation orders as well, um, not being able. A lot of the similar things to what Deborah and Jamie were talking about, not being able to access resources as easily um, if you are an LGBTQ plus person living at home um, under parents or people who don't know that you're out, you know, you're not out to them. It can be really difficult to access those resources through the internet um, when people are watching you. Um, There's also this increase of uh, not being able to um, keep your job or things like that because your partner might out you to your job. Uh, So it's, it just added to some of these stressors and things that they were already experiencing. We had a question that that is, goes along these lines about domestic violence and the elderly. Does affect does does this affect older groups differently? This is a question that came in by um, email, I believe. So if I can jump in, yeah. um, one of the things that I consistently say is that um, domestic violence does not discriminate; and it can happen to anybody. Um, and so, yes, we do see it. Um, happening in the elderly populations. And I think what we deal with a lot there is um, we have generational teachings and understandings and belief systems um, that make it a little bit more challenging to work with our elderly population. That doesn't mean that we don't. It just is, um, it's challenging. You know, I, I look at my father who's in his 80s. Well, the way that he was raised was one way and how I was raised was differently and then so on and so forth. Um, and so we, we are dealing with a lot of cultural and, and generational um, influences there, but we do see it. Um, and um, recently there was a, a murder suicide and they were elderly. It was an elderly couple. Um, and so it's, it is, you deal with it differently because oftentimes you're dealing with someone who comes from a very strong background in terms of, what their expectations are for a relationship. Um, but it does, it, it does happen. And, and we work with them to uh, ensure that they have what they need. Um, a lot of times you're going to have financial abuse um, prevalent with elderly couples, elderly people, um, because they are receiving social security benefits, potentially a pension. Um, and that's a way of pe- keeping them isolated and controlled um, and it is uh, somewhat easier to say I'm doing this because they're incapacitated or they're unable to care for themselves. And, and so I should be receiving their money because I provide them with care and then don't provide them with that care. So, so it is a little bit different, but it is still prevalent. Um, and we, we still do, uh, we do still see it both in the community and in our shelters as well. Deborah, any any similar experiences at Middleway? Yeah, and to add to that, I think it can be really challenging for somebody who's elderly to reach out for help if the person who's abusing them is their caretaker, because then they don't know how they're going to get taken care of. And so we've, we've worked with elderly, and when you think about generationally, sometimes it can then turn into the children who then abuse the parents. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to see those cases, but I'm, I'm sure Jamie will agree that we're always happy when they reach out for help and that we can provide support for them. You're listening to yes. Noon, Noon Edition on WFIU, and we are talking about domestic violence and how how COVID has had an impact on domestic violence issues. We have three guests with us. Amanda Salguero is the Director of Research and Impact for the Domestic Violence Network. Jamie Schnurpel is with the Julian Center. And Deborah Morrow is with Middleway House. My co-host today and a 
frequent co-host going forward on Noon Edition is Lori McRobbie, who's joining us today. I think Lori has another question. Yeah, I wanted to just go back to Amanda's report again. I'm sort of interested more in the in uh, not just in the statistics and and so forth, but uh, I believe your report also talked about some uh, solutions and steps that can be taken. And I wonder if you can talk a bit more about those and uh, and how you arrived at them. Yeah, um, we came up with. I believe three recommendations. Um, the first being a continued support and increase of funding for our Central Indiana domestic violence service providers. Um, we know the impact that things like VAWA have had and the funding that VAWA provides to our service providers. Um, and we know that there has been like an increase in reporting since VAWA since VAWA's inception in 1994, um, the rate of non-fatal, non-fatal intimate partner violence decreased for a period of time. Um, these sorts of things happened when increased funding was available and is still available. Um, so we know if we continue to increase that funding to our service providers, they're able to do more work in the community to help diminish these issues that we're seeing. Um, the second recommendation we have is to continue improving and in expanding prevention uh, and providing funding towards these efforts as well as the direct service piece. Um, we also want to advocate for healthy relationships and teen dating violence curriculum in schools across the area. Um, these two will work in conjunction with each other. Um, working on the prevention piece in the adult community. Um, so that includes education on things like what does domestic violence even look like? Um, a lot of people still hold the notion that it is only physical. And we want to get the word out that that is not the case. Uh, we also want to decrease stigma around domestic violence to help reporting so that way people are able to get help. Um, and then the teen piece is if we start young and in schools, we can break some of these things that have been um, either normalized through their home environment. So I know Jamie and Deborah kind of talked about the impact of youth being at home with their parents and not having that break. Um, we'll probably see that impact uh, decades down the road um, as they grow into adults and what that looks like in those relationships. So a big part of our recommendations is teaching our youth about what healthy relationships look like, the warning signs of teen dating violence, those sorts of things. Um, the last recommendation we have is to move away for from the honor system for firearm surrender um, and this comes from a report that we released in 2021 um, talking about firearms in Indiana and the use of those firearms in intimate partner homicides. Um, right now, Indiana operates on an honor system where the judge will ask the respondent if they have any firearms in the home, uh, usually for a protective order case that has been filed. Um, and it is on the honor system. If that person says no, they don't have any, knowing well, well and good that they do, uh, that's where that ends. Um, and if they say that they do, there's not really a system of accountability in place to make sure that those um, weapons are removed from the home. Um, so just recommendations, looking at other places in the country that are moving away from this honor system and implementing a more operationalized system um, for firearms surrender in domestic violence cases. Um, the other portion of this is to implement further transformative justice practices as a long-term solution to violence prevention. So transformative justice practices include things such as um, providing safe and affordable housing, um, ensuring people don't live in food deserts, these things that can often lead to a feeling of loss and power and control in someone's own life uh, that may lead to um, committing acts of violence. Yeah, those are all. Are you finding uh, uh, people in the Indiana legislature who are willing to start taking up some of these recommendations? Is that something you're working on as well? We are working on that. Um, we have been in touch with the city of Indianapolis, working with their auditing department and kind of looking at that honor system piece of things. 
Yeah, I wanted to follow up on that, too, to, to see, you know, at what level there, these decisions, it seems like going to the legislature is one, one place to go. And that was a, a good question by Lori. Are there places like it sounds like schools, it sounds like city government, maybe county government? Um, what level is the best place to attack this or is it at all levels? Yes. <laughs> Ideally, anywhere and everywhere, anyone will hear me. I, <laughs> I say yes. Um, so I think starting city level is probably the most realistic um, and, and getting those city folks on board so that way they can help get um, county and state level people on board. Um, so I think it'll start more with looking at, you know, a city in Indiana or a county in Indiana that has taken this on um, and seeing the improvements of those of those statistics um, that will help push the story further and help get people on board. When you uh, question for really sort of for for each of you about um, where you see gaps in uh, kind of the provision of services um, across the spectrum of of um, factors that are affected by domestic violence and that can lead to domestic violence. I mean, we you've talked about uh, substance abuse and mental health services being obviously very tightly correlated with. Uh, with domestic violence issues. In fact, if I just as an aside, uh, Middleway House, uh, which is 50 years old this year or last year, I guess it was, began as a um, a drug agency and discovered that domestic violence was was sort of the most a single kind of root cause, if you will, of of drug use and drug abuse and so forth, and and transitioned. Um, so that was certainly one thing, but but uh, Amanda, you mentioned housing, food security. When when you if you could wave your wand and and create a kind of spectrum of services that would uh, help round out what victims can turn to, what would you point to? And Jamie, you want to take that one first, or or Amanda, or sure. any of you? I'm happy to. Um, so yeah, Amanda kind of really highlighted the, the insecurities, the food insecurities, and um, the lack of um, stable and safe housing. What we're seeing is a lot of development. However, that development is largely out of the price point of survivors who are um, restarting and, and trying to get back on their feet, so to speak. Um, the biggest thing, to be perfectly honest, is access to mental health services, drug treatment services that are not prohibitively expensive, um, and and having having those tools for survivors is critical. Um, education and and early intervention. Also, Amanda mentioned that is um, is very important. Um, because really that's how we're going to tackle this generational cycle that we're seeing. So it's, it's education, not necessarily just for the survivors, but it's education for the broader community as to what it is, what it, what it looks like, the fact that it is in everybody's community. It does not discriminate that, you know, the, the survivor look of years past is very different um, than what we're seeing now. Likewise, so is the type of abuse that we're seeing, um, you know, educating around that and, and just having a, a, a more aware um, community is going to be important. We just recently with the IMPD uh, domestic violence unit started a discussion um, called or with a group and, and we're called the um, just sort of DB stakeholders and we're just not sure what to call it yet. But part of the discussion that has come up is, you know, and and certainly don't want to um, take us off track, but it's also that we have some resources that are available for um, survivors, and we certainly need more. As I'm mentioning, we, we certainly need uh, additional mental health care, but we also need the community to realize that this isn't just a survivor issue. This is also a batterer's issue. It's also the abuser's issue, and, and we're not really attacking that side of it. Um, we have some punitive damages in place and some punitive um, approaches. And, but as Amanda said, um, 
you know, firearm surrender right now is, is all voluntary. Um, and it's on the honor system. And even I say it's all voluntary because even if you are mandated by the judge, there's no follow up. Um, and that's dangerous to ask an officer to go and, and ask for a firearm at a house that we know that they're in. So, so we kind of have to approach this from both sides and, and have really comprehensive discussion about making sure that both sides are getting the resources that they need. Um, so, you know, kind of a, <laughs> a lot longer of an answer than I initially yeah. intended. Um, but we've got a lot of different moving parts that, that need attention, quite frankly. Yeah. No, oh, thank you. Uh, Deborah or, or uh, Amanda, do you want to speak to that as well? I would love to. I very much appreciate what Amanda said about the prevention programs. Like I always say, we can do the crisis work forever, but the only way we'll ever end this issue is through prevention and education around that. And I'm I'm really proud of Middle Way House's staff and the prevention work that they do in the community, in the schools, and the fact that they were able to take it all virtual during the pandemic, um, even for the school systems to have it virtual. Um, when I look at the greatest need, you know, I agree the mental health, the substance abuse disorder help, all of that is needed, but housing is so huge because it, it, it it's a huge problem when there's not enough affordable housing for individuals and for somebody to stay in an abusive relationship or not feel that they can leave because they don't feel any hope at being able to get affordable housing. When you think about the long waiting list of for Section 8 and things like that, it can seem really hopeless to an individual. And I think we have to do better on housing in all of the communities to really be able to provide opportunities for people to be able to leave and to be able to have a quality of life in a home without abuse. Mm-hmm. Housing seems to come up over and over again, affordable housing. We've had a, a couple questions that, that were forwarded to me by our producer that sort of follow along what we've been talking about. Um, for teens and young adults learning online during the pandemic and during this pandemic, you, you've addressed it a little bit, but with the increased stress that they've been going over and the different way of learning, does that create um, any kind of um, concern or probability that perpetrators, there might be increase of risk of people to be perpetrators or to even be survivor or to be survivors because they grew up in such a stressful time with a different learning model? Yes. Um, I can speak research um, related, and we also, DVN does uh, teach curriculum in schools as well um, to middle school and high school students. And we did teach online during the pandemic, um, during that portion that was online. Um, We do know that engagement was, it dipped quite a bit. Um, it was a lot harder to get students interested in what we were talking about. Um, understandably, um, I don't blame them at all for not wanting to engage in guest speakers online um, with everything else going on. We know prior to this period of time, um, there was already an increased risk for those who grew up um, witnessing violence in the home. Um, for them to either experience the violence or to perpetrate the violence because it's normalized. They think that's what a relationship looks like. That's what love looks like. They don't really question it because it's it's what they know. Um, So there's definitely an even more increased risk of that happening now that they were home during all of that. we teach about ACEs and trauma-informed care, um, ACEs being adverse childhood experiences uh, study and the impacts that has on adulthood. Um, and, and violence in the home is one of the biggest indicators uh, for um, perpetrating or experiencing in the future. So, and a lot of that happened during the summer months when school wasn't in session, but 
definitely now that students have been at home the entire year. Definitely. Okay. So we've got about 10 minutes to go, a little less than 10 minutes to go in the program. So if you still have a question that we haven't answered, you can call us 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I like Lori's last question about the the magic wand. Uh, What are some... Uh, if you if you could uh, sit with a legislator now, or if there if the entire General Assembly was listening to us right now, I mean, what would be a bill that you would want to see someone sponsor and the others just fall in line behind? Uh, <laughs> only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can name as many as you want in uh, seven minutes. Yeah, you can pack a lot of stuff into one bill. You know. I mean, not I, to be not not to be um, repeating too much, but. Absolutely housing. I worked with houseless communities um, in the past. And one thing that we always said was you can't focus on the other stuff. You can't focus on on wanting to improve your mental health condition, on wanting to um, go through recovery if you don't have a a safe place to stay. Um, If you don't know where you're going to sleep at night, um, where you're going to put your belongings, you're not worried about any of the other stuff. And the same thing goes for survivors as well. Um, If they don't have that answer, they can't really think about anything else. Um, So that would definitely be number one, I think, for me. Okay. That was Amanda, right? Correct. Okay. (laughs) Jamie? Uh, I agree. It's it's housing and, and food resources um, for both of those reasons. You can't, if you're hungry or you're tired or you're unsheltered, trying to figure out employment, medical benefits, health insurance, like all of the things, health care, um, education. It's, it's very challenging without those two very key basic needs. And if I can just jump in really quickly, Jamie, you, I think you said earlier that you, um, you're able to house a certain number of your clients. Um, mm-hmm. And is that all Section 8 housing, so it's, it's you know, short-term? Um, so actually, um, we have uh, an apartment building, and so through that, we are able to house. Um, and some of that is subsidized through HUD funding and through Section 8. Um, actually, Section 8 is the preferred way of getting uh, subsidized housing because it is um, – it's really as long as you're working the program. And so – to the tune of I can, you know, will it to my children. Um, and so I, I think that having more resource there is, is critical yeah. for sure. But yes, we can. Yeah, and I know I, I, I feel obligated to, to make a little shout out to uh, Coburn Place in Indianapolis that I know is a housing yes. um, agency. Uh, my daughter happens to work there, so uh, this goes out to her. But I, I think it, here in Bloomington with Middleway, of course, has had the rise for a long time, um, also providing some housing. But again, it's limited. Yeah. Last year, we have 28 apartments and... Last year, our transitional housing program served 157 individuals, 53 adults, and 104 children. And in our shelter, we served 278 individuals, 156 adults, and 122 children. And our goal is always to get them into permanent housing because just like Amanda said, without housing, they can't do anything else. And we're even facing some additional challenges now that the moratorium is over on rent we've recently worked with a woman who due to the pandemic and the kids being home was unable to work um and so she ended up evicted with over ten thousand dollars of debt from her apartment Mm -hmm. and she's an individual who had experienced domestic violence and was trying to make it and the pandemic totally pulled all of that out from under her so there are so many different ways that survivors are, are impacted from that. Even if she was not in an abusive relationship at that time, she was she had gotten out and was trying to rebuild her life and had the rug pulled out from under her. 
We have about two minutes to go. I'm going to give you each about 30 seconds to sort of sum up and, and offer any last thoughts for how people might be able to help on this issue. But first, I want to give all of your numbers. So Middle Way House is 812-336-0846. The Julian Center, 317-920-9320. You can also call Indiana 211, or you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. All right, Amanda, 30 seconds. Um. I'm so sorry. I just want to reiterate that um, domestic violence has definitely grown more severe since the pandemic started. It's still trending that way, even though we are, quote unquote, kind of out of it. Um, So this isn't anywhere near over. In fact, it's getting worse. And we really need to focus on solutions. All right. Jamie Schnurpel from the Julian Center. Uh, my my biggest um, piece of word of wisdom is to reach out for help. Reach out if you have questions. Reach out if you need help. Um, all of our partners uh, are here, you know, ready to help, um, and we want to uh, we want to do that. So that'd be my biggest takeaway. All right, Deborah. I agree. If you need help, please reach out for help. And if you know somebody who's experiencing domestic violence. Know that they're the expert in their own life and ask them what they need and then help them get their needs met. All right. That was Deborah Morrow from Middleway. Jamie was Jamie Schnurpel from Julian Center. Amanda Salguero, Director of Research and Impact for the Domestic Violence Network, were all with us today. This program, I should say, will be archived so anyone who's just joining us could listen to it or uh, any of the three of you could direct people to listen to it and they can – hear our program. It'll be up this afternoon. I also want to thank Lori McRobbie, our new co-host who's in our rotation now, for joining me today. And also our producers, Bento Boutier and Holden Abshire and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients. From initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. WFIU sustainers help keep the reliable journalism, the inspiring music, and compelling stories happening year-round on WFIU. By giving a little bit each month automatically from their checking account or credit card, our sustainers open up new worlds and ideas for everyone in South Central Indiana. Become a sustainer yourself by going to WFIU.org support. You're listening to WFIU Bloomington with translators W270BH at 1019 in Bloomington. W260 